following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emanuelcommunity.org. Morning, everyone. We're continuing on in our Saved series, What Happens When You Believe. Um, And we're on the third message of this series that's uh, entitled simply Conversion. Conversion. So uh, let's open up with a word of prayer as we look at this topic of of, uh, conversion. God, as we walk through this teaching on salvation, um, Lord, we find that in our hearts at times we have a resistance to some of the truths that uh, at some level don't make sense to us or implicate us in some ways that uh, don't always put us in the best light. But we pray that through this deeper understanding of the nature of the salvation we've been granted by you, that there would be a deep and heartfelt conclusion that a salvation comes from you and you alone, and not by anything that we can see in ourselves that is deserving of the grace that you give us, but it is purely your mercy, your love for us. And so may that continue to rise up as the conclusion in our hearts as we see what a great salvation has been granted to us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, in this order of salvation, um, we began the series by looking at this doctrine of election, which tells us that God chose us from even before the creation of the world. And he chose us not on anything good that he saw in us. In other words, there wasn't some sort of jumping to the future that God did and looked at who the good people were. And out of that assessment, chose us. But it says he chose us purely in his grace, out of his love for us. And as we said in that first message, God had to be the one to make the first move. Because lost in our sin, none of us had the desire to make that first move toward God. God had to start the work for us to even desire a move toward Him. And then last week, we looked at the doctrine of regeneration, of basically God imparting spiritual life into us, a process that is often referred to as being born again. And this work of regeneration also happens without our participation. There is no way that we could have participated because the Bible says before God came into our lives, we were spiritually dead. R.C. Sproul describes the condition like this. Regeneration is done by God and by God alone. A dead man cannot cooperate with his resurrection. Regeneration is a sovereign act of God in which man plays no role. After God brings us to life, of course, we certainly are involved in cooperating with Him. But unless God acts first, we will never be reborn in the first place. Now, I've gotten some emails from some of you as well as speaking personally with some of you that Uh, these first two messages in the series have made some of you kind of uncomfortable, a little bit uneasy. And it's because whenever we traditionally talk about salvation, so much of the emphasis is what we do, 
how we have to reach out to God and the decision that we have to make. But as you see, the way that I'm unpacking things, really up to now, we're just like slugs laying there, you know? And it's God who is doing everything. It's the true message of salvation in the Bible is of how profound our hopelessness and helplessness is unless God takes the initiative and God rescues us. He makes the first move. And I think this is consistent with Jesus' own teaching, as we saw in the Gospel of Luke. If you remember a few months ago when we looked at Luke 15 in the parable of the lost sheep, remember that? Of all of the animals, why did God choose sheep? Because they're just so helpless and dumb. Wait, I, you know, shepherds attest to the fact that when a sheep is lost and doesn't recognize its surroundings and doesn't see any of its friends, it gets so stressed out that often the sheep will just collapse. It, it literally becomes paralyzed with fear. And that's why in the story that Jesus told, the shepherd, once he found the sheep, had to hoist it on his own shoulders and carry the dumb thing all the way back home because it couldn't even walk. Okay? It, it, it describes, again, this picture of utter helplessness that the shepherd is the one that must find the sheep and rescue it. The sheep doesn't find its way back home. This brings us to the next doctrine of conversion. It is the first doctrine in the order of salvation where our own actions are now involved. And as we've been doing each message in this series, let's begin with a definition by Wayne Grudem. He defines conversion in the following way. Conversion is our willing response to the gospel call in which we sincerely repent of sins and place our trust in Christ for salvation. The word conversion itself means turning. Here it represents a spiritual turn, a turning from sin to Christ. The turning from sin is called repentance, and the turning to Christ is called faith. And so, as Grudem highlights, there are essentially two components to a genuine conversion. There is faith, or in other words, I believe in Jesus Christ, and then secondly, there is repentance. I feel sorrow for my sins, and I ask God for forgiveness. Now, if you, there's plenty of Bible verses that support this picture of conversion. In Acts 16, verse 31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Again, faith in Jesus connected with salvation. In Acts 3, 19, there's a clear linkage with repentance and being saved. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And then in Acts 20, 21, we see both of these themes combined into one statement of salvation. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. So here we see both the faith in Jesus and the turning away from sin or repentance captured in a singular picture of salvation. So what I want to do is I want to first examine the nature of saving faith. And then in the second part of the message, I want to unpack a little about what repentance really is. So let's begin with saving faith. In looking at saving faith, I think the first issue that we have to address is one of terminology. 
Because modern American culture has a very different understanding of these words, faith and belief. It can be very misleading, in other words, to say that we need to believe in Jesus Christ because that word believe can mean something very different than what it did in the Bible times. In our modern usage of the word believe in the English language, it largely means agreeing to a fact, right? That's what it means to believe something is I agree to a fact, And the problem is that this kind of belief doesn't actually cost you anything. It doesn't have to cost you anything. In other words, you don't have to have any skin in that game. There may be no consequences of any meaningful nature if that belief turns out not to be true. For example, I believe that last year the best-selling sedan in America was the Honda Accord. I believe that Kobe Bryant has scored more total career points than Michael Jordan. I believe that that purple Teletubby's name is Tinky Winky. Now, one of those three statements is actually not true. Does anyone know which one it is? It's the first one. (laughs) Because the best-selling car last year was not the Accord. It was the Camry. Okay? But who cares, right? Who really cares? Unless you're the CEO of Toyota, then you care. But uh, who cares? Because whether any of these things are true or not, it doesn't matter. There's no consequence to it in your life personally. It doesn't affect you in any real way. And this is not what the Bible is meaning when it says believe in Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in Jesus is not to simply agree to a set of facts about him. It's not less than that, but it's much more than that, the historical facts about Jesus. John Piper says, we live in a superficially Christianized society where thousands of lost people think they do believe in Jesus. In most of my witnessing to unbelievers and nominal Christians, the command, believe in Jesus and you shall be saved, is virtually meaningless. Drunks on the streets say they do. Unmarried couples sleeping together say they do. Elderly people who haven't sought worship or fellowship for 40 years say they do. Every stripe of world-loving church attendees says they do. Now, that, you may think that that's really harsh of Piper. But he's pointing out that when we reduce belief to nothing more than agreeing to a set of facts about Jesus... We end up with a Christianity that has no resemblance to what's preached in the Gospels. Because basically all I have to do is agree to a bunch of facts, and it makes no impact on the way that I actually live my life. On the other hand, I'm going to argue that it's also misleading in modern English to say, put your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Because in our day, Faith typically means some kind of unshakable belief in something, no matter how irrational or foundless it may be. We can even have faith in something that in the heart of hearts inside us, we don't actually truly believe is true. In other words, in this understanding of faith, the facts don't really matter. That's not what the issue is when it comes to faith. It's like this. I have faith that the Bears are going to win the Super Bowl this year. 
under the able leadership of Jimmy Clausen. <laughs> you see, when I use faith like that, it's really just expressing irrational loyalty, right? Because the truth is there's no way the bears are going to go all the way. I'm sorry, okay? Or it's like this. Have faith. Star Wars, The Force Awakens, is going to be awesome. You see, as a lifelong Star Wars fan since the third grade when that movie came out, I've had to endure the horror of the last three Star Wars movies. So, I need this one to be good. And so... I have faith. I have faith in J.J. Abrams, right? I have, I have faith. You see? But faith in Jesus is not wishful thinking or trying our best to have a positive outlook on our future. It's not irrational loyalty. That's not what faith is, according to the Bible. Because the common way that both belief and faith are used in modern English, saving faith is better captured by the phrase, trusting in Jesus. Trusting in Jesus. Because the Bible gives us a picture of saving faith as entering into a trusting relationship with Jesus. It's not about agreement to the set of facts of who Jesus is, although that's part of believing. But to have faith in Jesus is to reorient my entire life around that conviction. In other words, trust that actually results in a difference in the way that I conduct my life to make that claim to be true. In other words, faith demands, demands a response in action. In other words, to say Jesus is Lord is not the same thing as to say the sky is blue. True faith results in the letting go of the life that I once held to, that everything that I wrap my belief around in this life that I made for myself, I abandon. And now I embrace this truth, this person in this relationship as my Lord and Savior, believing that He is the one that is going to take care of all of my needs and look after me. A few years ago, a couple of years ago, our family be- uh, uh, went on vacation with Betty's side of the family to Toronto, Canada. And while we were there, we had an opportunity to go up to the observation deck of this building known as the CN Tower, which at 1,800 feet is the tallest stand, uh, self-supporting structure in the Western Hemisphere. But once we got inside the CN Tower, we actually found out that uh, for a little more money, obviously, you can actually go out onto the roof of the tower, and they have this narrow little ledge, and they hook you up to this cord, and then you can walk around the ledge. And then at some point in the walk around, it's called the edge walk, the guide has all the tourists let go and you do this. <laughs> so my son Luke wanted to do this. And I wasn't so sure. You see, it's very easy for me to hypothetically believe that this is safe. Because, listen, if even one tourist died doing this, <laughs> plummeted to their death, 
wouldn't they have shut down this attraction right away? So if I was just Googling this from my living room planning for this trip, I would be like, oh man, in a heartbeat, I'm going to do this when we get to Toronto. But as we were there at the ticket counter of the attraction, at the backstaging area, you see all the orange jumpsuits, and you see all the cordage and everything, and you see who the guides are. And I wasn't so sure in that moment, you know? I was like, what do I even know about these Canadians? (laughs) Like, do I really want to put my life hanging on the balance by a nylon cord and a little carabiner? And I was like, where was this stuff even manufactured? Like, yeah, I don't know. China, Pakistan, I don't know, Vietnam. And then I was like, how often do these guys check the equipment? Like, these guys probably don't make much more than minimum wage. Like, I don't know how, how, how serious they are about their job. Like, what if one of those nylon cords is kind of frayed? You see, the truth is that hypothetically, I believe that everything would be fine. But in that moment of truth when I had to pay for that ticket, I didn't have enough trust in the whole thing to actually go through with it. So we didn't do it. That's a little bit like what faith is like, isn't it? You can talk up a big game sitting in your living room about all kinds of things that you believe to be true. But when you're standing on that edge and dangling by a cord, that's trust, right? That is trust. I am putting my faith in that thing, that that is going to save my life. Wayne Grudem says, In order to be saved, I must decide to depend on Jesus to save me. In doing this, I move from being an interested observer of the facts of salvation and the teachings of the Bible to being someone who enters into a new relationship with Jesus Christ as a living person. Saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. Now, some of you may be wondering, how do I know if that's my faith? How do I know if my faith is hypothetical or if it's genuine? How can we know this? Well, I think the best answer would be Are you trusting him right now in the present day for your needs in this life? In other words, if you have faith that when you die, you breathe your last on your deathbed, that Jesus is going to take you to heaven and forgive you of your sins, do you also trust him this day for your much smaller needs? You see, When we understand faith to be a relationship of trust with Jesus, there ought to be some visible demonstration of that trust in this present life. And not just as when I die, I know I'm going to go to heaven. Dallas Willard puts it like this. Multitudes of professing Christians today have been led to believe that God, for some unfathomable reason, just thinks it appropriate to transfer credit from Christ's merit account to ours and to wipe out our debt, sin debt, upon inspecting our mind and finding that we believe a particular theory of the atonement to be true. Even if we trust everything but God in all other, mat- but God in all other matters that concern us. 
It is left unexplained how it is possible that one can rely on Christ for the next life without doing so for this one. Trust Him for one's eternal destiny without trusting Him for the things that relate to Christian life. Is this really possible? Surely it is not. Not within one life. The eternal life of which Jesus speaks is not knowledge about God, but an intimately interactive relationship with Him. You see, what Willard is saying is there's a lot of Christians running around out there that think that salvation works like some kind of magic spell, that God bores with his infinite knowledge into my brain and sees what kind of facts I believe about the way salvation works. And as long as I got those ducks in a row and my facts are straight, then God stamps my passport and says, heaven, says, I'm good. That's not the way the Bible describes faith. It's not assent to a list of facts, but it is a personal trust in relationship with Jesus that demonstrates true saving faith is real in the heart of a believer. As Willard says, some Christians try to separate these two faiths. One is a faith that God will get me into heaven, and another is a faith that I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills this month. Or my child is rebellious, and I don't know how to win this child's heart back. It's in that moment the question is, where is your faith? What do you believe in in that moment? And what Willard is suggesting is for a lot of people, they say, I have faith for God to get me into heaven, but when my marriage is going south, or I have no money in the bank, our faith lies completely elsewhere other than God. And he says, is that picture even possible of two faiths? And Willard says, surely it is not. Either you trust in Jesus or you don't. That is the essence of conversion, is at one time I trusted myself. I trusted money. I trusted whatever else that you think. I trusted my husband, my wife. I trusted my goodness. But then when I understood the gospel... I trusted Jesus. I trusted Christ alone as my Savior, as my Lord. The other half of the conversion is repentance. We cannot think of turning to Jesus in saving faith without at the same time turning away from sin in repentance for our old life. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, there's this interesting rebuke of John the Baptist against the Pharisees and Sadducees who sought after his baptism ministry. It says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. You see, these leaders of Israel were scared of the message that John the Baptist was preaching of the coming judgment. And so they were hedging their bets. And just in case, they don't know what's going to happen. And so what they did was they said, baptize us too. Baptize us because we also want what you're giving out. And John the Baptist confronts them and he says, if you want me to baptize you, that's meaningless. Because the truth is there's no change of heart toward the sinful life that you're living. You see, you can want salvation enough out of a fear of punishment But unless there is a genuine re-understanding of sin 
in your life, there's not true conversion happening there. What do you understand about the sin that is in your heart? Some people really wrestle with this. They say, this is what I don't like about the Christian message. You guys are such Debbie Downers. Like, I like this positive stuff about God is love and how he wants to do all these good things. And when I die, I get to go to heaven. But why do you always have to talk about this hell stuff and about sin and make everyone feel so bad about themselves? Why do you have to make everyone grovel and make them all depressed? Like, why can't you just be positive? And that's something that some people really challenge is, can you have the gospel message only talking about the love of God and not about sin and repentance? And what the Bible says categorically is no. That is not the gospel because at the very heart of God's message of love is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. We have to know what we are being rescued from if we can even talk about being rescued by God. In the Old Testament, there are two primary words for this term repentance. The first one literally means to pant or to groan. And it communicates the emotional nature of repentance, of grieving over our sin. The second word for repentance is rather different. It describes the conscious, willful act of forsaking sin and returning to God. So here are two aspects of repentance in the Old Testament. One is of a sorrow, of grieving, of a pain that we feel in our heart. It's the emotional side. And then the other is the volitional, willful side that says, I am going to actually make a decision to turn my back on the sin and turn to God and seek his forgiveness. Interestingly, in the New Testament, it's very similar. There are two primary terms for the word repentance in the New Testament. The first one is literally remorse or regret. It stresses the emotional component of repentance again. It's a sorrow. And then the second term literally means to think differently about something. Or in other words, to have a change of mind or a turning in a new direction. So as you can see, in both the Old and New Testaments, the idea of repentance has two components to it. One is this emotional sorrow. I have this whole different attitude to the sin that I once indulged in and loved so much. Now it pains me. I feel heartache over it. I feel a sense of regret that this is the life I chose. And then it is not just mood or emotion, but it's decision. I now turn my back on that sin and I follow Christ and I seek forgiveness for the very thing that I once loved. Millard Erickson says, Repentance is godly sorrow for one's sin, together with the resolution to turn from it. If we have sinned and the consequences are unpleasant, we may well regret what we have done. But that is not true repentance. Real repentance is sorrow for one's sin because of the wrong done to God and the hurt inflicted upon Him. This sorrow is accompanied by a genuine desire to abandon that sin. Now, repentance is more than just feeling sorry and making a commitment not to chase after that sin anymore. It also has a component of faith. In other words, I now trust God to forgive me of that sin, that God has a solution to this problem. 
That's what's captured in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. You see, there is a destructive guilt that the devil uses. And the way that you recognize that guilt is it drives you further away from God. You don't need God to feel guilty. All of us know what it's like to feel guilty. We all know what it's like to beat ourselves up for mistakes we've made in our past. But when that guilt is given to us by the Holy Spirit, it is accompanied by faith that enables us to not run away from God, not to run in denial or hide, but to be able to come to God, believing that even in our confession, no matter what we have done, we will be forgiven by His mercy. That is why godly sorrow does not leave regret. There is no despair. There is no hopelessness in that godly sorrow because even in that guilt, There is hope because of what God has done for us. We don't spiral down in self-hatred or despair. But the end point of repentance is joy, is hope, is faith. We looked last week at this doctrine of regeneration, which the prophet Ezekiel described as removing this heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And when that heart of flesh is given, one of the things that that does is it sensitizes our heart to sin so that we begin to loathe that sin we once hated. And I want to say this. To me, this posture of repentance is one of the most powerful demonstrations of the existence of God, in my opinion, of anything empirically measurable out there in our world. Because the truth is, I don't think this stance exists by nature. Not by human instinct, for sure. Um, I think the truth is, left to our own devices, our instinct is always to cover up. It's always to deny, always to minimize, always to self-protect. I really sincerely believe that unless God does a work in our heart, none of us have this posture towards sin of repentance. I'm sure many of you have heard or seen Donald Trump's comments that he recently made about his lack of need for forgiveness from God. And so I want to play a brief portion of an interview that Trump did a few days later uh, with CNN's Anderson Cooper, uh, who called him out on those statements that he made about forgiveness and repentance during this family leadership summit that Trump attended in Iowa. Talked about this on Saturday at this uh, Faith and Values Forum, and I think and a lot of people haven't heard you talk about it and were really interested. Okay, fine. Um, in Iowa. And by the way, I was very well received. I had the biggest standing ovation, the biggest standing ovation, and it was really a great day. It was really a great day. And, and a lot of people didn't focus on it because they got caught up in the whole McCain thing. You said at the Faith Forum, when asked if you've ever asked forgiveness from God, you said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. And that surprised some, some well, people Well, I don't think faith. so. You know, and then I said communion. I go to communion, and that's asking forgiveness. You know, in my For you, that's, that's what Well, it's is. a form of asking for forgiveness, yes, communion. And I go to church a lot, but you, and I'm Protestant. I'm but, Presbyterian. But you, 
at the idea of asking for forgiveness, that's not a central, is that a central tenant for you? Is that, or is that something well, that just... Well, I, I like to work where I don't really have to ask for... I like to do the right thing where I don't have to actually ask for forgiveness. Does that make sense to you? You know, where you don't make such bad things that you don't have to ask for forgiveness. I mean, I try and lead a life where I don't have to ask God for forgiveness. But I'm Protestant. I'm Presbyterian, which a lot of people are surprised to hear. I go to church. The great Norman Vincent Peale was my minister for years. The power of positive thinking was fantastic. And so for forgiveness, that, that notion of forgiveness, um, that's not a central Well, I try not you. to make mistakes where I have to ask for forgiveness, for one thing. So when I'm asked a question like that, it's like, you know, I don't like to make a lot of mistakes. So, and I would never ask the detail, but the idea of repentance, is that something that's important to you? I think repenting is terrific. But, I mean, is that, but do you feel the need to? If I that, make a mistake, me, of if I make a mistake, yeah, I think it's great. But I try not to make mistakes. I mean, why? Why do I have to, you know, repent? Why do I have to ask for forgiveness if you're not making mistakes? I work hard. I'm an honorable person. I have thousands of people that work for me. I've employed tens of thousands of people over the years. You give millions to charity. I give. I built the Vietnam Memorial in Lower Manhattan L with a small group of people. Donald Trump makes such an easy target. <laughs> um, but in many ways, I'm going to argue that, in truth, he's a caricature, maybe an extreme caricature, of, I think, honestly, the way most of us react when it comes to our need for forgiveness. I mean, are we really that much better than Donald Trump in acknowledging our sins? Or do we just know how to package our pride in subtler, more socially acceptable, less brazen ways? Because, you know, in truth, I think even in our, quote, confessions, um, I think often there are mixed motives when we share our failures and our deficiencies with other people. Um, let me give you a few examples of the way I think it plays out. Uh, I think often, out of our insecurities, we fish for compliments, hoping that someone is going to contradict our self-effacing statements, like, ah, I'm so fat. I look horrible. Oh, no, you don't, honey. Don't say that. You look gorgeous. No, I don't. Or, I'm no good at this. No, not at all. You're doing a great job. Keep at it. I think other times we put ourselves down out of false humility. Oh, don't thank me. I couldn't have done it without all you guys. Sure, that's how you feel. Sometimes, in truth, in, in probably the worst way, we put ourselves down as just the necessary preamble to attacking someone else. Listen, I know I'm not blameless, but you're the one who always, and then dot, 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 right? Or, I'm sorry that I said that to you, but if you hadn't acted like such a, and then dot, 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 right? Wonderful confessions, right? I mean, next time someone does that, call them on their bluff. Yeah, you do look a little chunky these days. <laughs> or, you're right, you aren't very good at this. Why don't you just move aside and let someone competent do it? Or, you're right, we could have done it without you. <laughs> and you couldn't have done it without us. 
You see, an honest confession is so rare to find, isn't it? We throw these things out there without really meaning what we say as just false humility or ways to seek attention or to try to compensate for our insecurities. And that's the picture of life, isn't it? For all your life, you're managing your image like this. You're always shifting the blame. You're always denying or covering up your failures. You're always minimizing your faults. But when the Spirit convicts you for the first time in your life, you have courage and faith to own up to your sin and to trust that there is a God big enough and good enough and gracious enough to forgive you of all your sin. You see, to the world, guilt is pathological. Guilt is a pathology that has to be counseled out of you. And how many millions and billions of dollars are spent in America trying to resolve guilt? But according to the gospel, our guilt is a very real problem that God alone can solve. And conversion is the first step on that journey of discovering the power and the joy of God's forgiveness. And the last statement I want to make as we close here is this. Just as our initial faith is continually demonstrated by our daily trust in God for the needs of our present life, our initial repentance is demonstrated by a daily posture of brokenness and confession before God. You see, just as faith demonstrates itself daily, so repentance demonstrates itself daily in the fundamental way that I view my sin of not always trying to protect my image or defend myself or throw other people under the bus. But it's about me embracing who I am before God and realizing that the only solution is in His forgiveness and His love for me. That is the daily posture of a Christian. Let's pray. As we think about this message of conversion, I want to ask you, the way it's being described in this message, does that describe your experience of conversion? Because I really worry of how many in the church today are actually living in some false hope that because they have at some point in their life agreed in their heads to a set of facts about salvation that, you know, they say, I'm good with God. So everything's great. Like Donald Trump. Hey, I'm a Protestant. I'm a, I'm a Presbyterian and uh, I try to live a good life and not make mistakes so I don't need his forgiveness. Like, I'm a good person. I give a lot of money to charities and, and you know, that's... that's theology according to, that's the gospel according to Donald Trump. But the truth is, I don't think that gospel of Trump is that different than a lot of our gospels. But what the gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that you are far worse than you actually think you are, but you're also far more loved than you've ever realized as well. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's not just about an agreement to a set of facts. It means I totally throw myself upon that altar of surrender. And I trust in Him every day in this life. And then one day when I've reached my last day for the life to come. That is saving faith. And it's a posture of repentance. That at one period of my life, man, I was that guy. You know, all these, this false humility, all of these outward shows to more feed my reputation, even in my, quote, confession, it was all spin to make me just look better in the eyes of others. But then you know what? One day, God actually opened my eyes, and for the first time, the lights came on, and I saw what I looked like, and I saw the ugliness of my sin through his perspective, and it shattered me. It shattered this lie that I'd been living all my life. And I thought, how could I love that? How could I love that ugly thing called sin? And for the first time, I understood what repentance was. As I cried out to God for mercy, save me, save me from myself. Save me from this ugly monster that I've become. I need you, Jesus. I need you. That's repentance. Not image management. Not shaving the truth to put ourselves in the best light. It's kneeling before the cross, grabbing it with both arms, and saying, Christ, you alone are my Savior. You alone are the one that can rescue me. And I want to invite you this day that if that is not what you have experienced, that the Spirit may be speaking to you this day and saying, make that confession this day while you have today and while the invitation goes out to cling to Jesus and realize that His love and His mercy is there for you this day. We're about to take the Lord's Supper, which Donald Trump, in a very demeaning and uh, insolent way, said, you know, I go to church, I take the little cup, I eat the little bread. But what we realize is we come to this table set before us by Christ himself to receive because we know we are not worthy. None of us are worthy to come to this table. But in a little bit as we gather and take these elements, the confession that we are making as a church family is, by God's grace and His grace alone do I come to receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. So let's just pray for a couple minutes as the worship team will lead us in one song of response before we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray.